Michael Kerwin, you're a British Jesuit. You are a visiting professor of theology here at the Loyola Institute in Dublin. And you're going to be giving a paper with an intriguing title, Stand Upright and Raise Your Head, Doing Theology in Troubled Times. Are theologians, have they been hanging their heads in recent years? We have had a, a rough time, you could say, over the last several hundred years. Theology has been pushed to the margins, especially in, in Western societies. But the specific talk that I'm giving, the title comes from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which is certainly about troubled times. So it's about a universe that seems to be in chaos, Christians suffering horrendously at the hands of people persecuting them. And the original impulse of the talk came from another talk which I gave with regard to the situation in the Middle East and Christians suffering there. So there's a kind of apocalyptic feel to it. And we find ourselves in a time of immense transition, immensely disturbing transition. I suppose if I had to put it very bluntly, I think one of the big challenges that faces us at the moment is how do we resist, how do we combat fascism? Put it absolutely bluntly, whatever you define as fascism, wherever it's to be found, it's back. The intolerance is on our streets once again. And the, well, as as great Irish poet puts it, you know, the, the centre cannot hold. The extremes seem to be pulling us apart. And I think that 20 years into this new century, 20 years into this new millennium, conversations that were happening at the beginning of the millennium are beginning to make sense to me now in terms of the kind of contribution that theology, which I've described as Christian wisdom, theology can offer to contribute a way forward in a situation where, frankly, secularism has a few of the answers, but not all of them. And in fact, in many ways, seems to be very vulnerable. Our secular liberal consensus, uh, certainly since the Second World War and Going back further, over the last 400, 500 years, seems to be under enormous pressure for all kinds of reasons. And my question then is, can theologians find a voice to contribute once again? There's a lot of things in what you've said, a lot of issues there. Let's, let's unpack them. Let's take a look at the rise of fascism then. Are you talking about Islamic fundamentalism, Christian evangelical fundamentalism? Are you talking about racism? Are you talking about Trump in the United States? What are you referencing? I would say all of the above, frankly. I think the rise of intolerance is something that we are facing across the board in all kinds of different contexts. And there are religious versions of that and there are secular versions of that. And one of the things that I think we're trying to pick out is it's actually very hard to define what's religious and what's secular. And one of the challenges I would put when we're sometimes presented with a choice, okay, you either have to be religious or else you have to be secular. I think it's very often the choice between good and bad religion, if you want to kind of use that kind of terminology. And to give an example, I'm a big fan of Margaret Atwood, who has got into trouble recently because she's questioned some of the momentum behind the Me Too movement, and she's stood up in favour of a colleague who's been accused of inappropriate behaviour. And she used the W word. She said that this is in danger of turning into a witch hunt. Yeah. And associated terminology around scapegoats, apocalypse. This is religious language they're using to describe our situation. And the fact that, indeed, she did get a reaction, a very kind of negative reaction from many people, questioning, is she a good feminist or is she a bad feminist? 
that's a religious kind of discussion about who's orthodox, who's heterodox, who's a heretic, who's in, who's out. Mm. And it doesn't help us to see these specifically religious or non-religious arguments. And the fact that we describe some situations in religious terms and others we don't. So if a crazy guy sets off a bomb in the middle of Kabul marketplace, we call that religious violence and we describe it a particular way. But if somebody sets off a bomb from... 6,000 miles away in Arizona, tapping away on a console, setting off a drone attack. We don't describe it as religious violence. We describe it as democracy or we describe it as a fight for the Western values or something. But it's still violence. It's still an atrocity. And by the same token, there are people, and let's take women and feminism, there are women who would say that their rights in a secular state are much more protected and validated than the rights, say, in some religious institutions where they are not recognised or where they're not treated equally. So in that sense, religion itself can also be a tool of oppression that, say, a secular state would not tolerate. I think those are absolutely important and valid points. Uh, But uh, you've got plenty of secular institutions that are not providing any protection. So you look at the, well, you mentioned the American president at the moment. He's the the head of state and many women in America now feel under threat from the political establishment. Uh, So there's an example where, in a sense, the, the state is unable to protect. And this is, I think, one of the interesting questions around what the state can and can't do for us. And possibly one of the reasons why there's such a disengagement of many people from politics, because they feel well, actually, our politicians cannot do anything for us. They cannot provide the kind of economic security that many people feel they need. And no individual state is going to protect us from climate change. No state can fully guarantee our safety in terms of uh, terrorism and so on. There's a whole set of areas where the state is actually relatively powerless to provide security, freedom, protection. And that is a crisis for the national state. And that's why the crisis we're facing around the assessment of globalisation Part of that is, 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 has the nation state had its day? Is there a point at which we've reached the limits of what the state can actually do for us? And it cannot provide many of those freedoms that allegedly are supposed to have done. And then you almost have a perfect storm, because if you're going to promote a Judeo-Christian theology in the middle of that, what you also have is the undermining of Christianity by those who, let's say, on the fundamentalist side, take it into a very right-wing culture war, say, in the States and, and in other Western places, and become exclusive, and there's them and us and those who are in. And then at the same time, you also have the fall in credibility of the institutional church, particularly the Catholic Church, in terms of the child sexual abuse and the handling of that, which is a major sore for many good Christians around the world. So the perfect storm arises where when the vacuum emerges for perhaps a reevaluation of a theology that might work, there's a real lack of credibility in the institution that might create that. Well, you've used the, the term perfect storm, and I think that's actually a good description, and that's why we're drawn to a sense of the apocalyptic, the sense of, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff coming our way that we can't actually handle. And I think the environmental crisis is, is one example, but all of these other really destabilising factors, and you mentioned again that the, the crisis of abuse is, I think, one of the central features of what we have to deal with now. So that sense of a kind of an apocalyptic situation which we feel helpless, what I do think we can do as Christian theologians is to identify some of the kind of 
psychological and social pressures that are at work and talk from our own tradition about how you might resist those. The example I like to give is the philosopher Zizek, uh, who I like very much because I was once mistaken for Zizek in a pub. <laughs> Somebody was you know, convinced that I was Shlavoj Zizek. And uh, so this is my main claim to academic fame at the moment. But uh, Zizek is um, he's a kind of Marxist atheist philosopher who nevertheless thinks that the Christian legacy, as he calls it, is way too important to be left in the hands of Christian fundamentalists. He said there's far too much in this tradition that needs to be left to those people. And he would talk about two false religions in the world today. And he talks one, on one hand about the self-massaging, narcissistic kind of religion that we get with late capitalism, where it becomes just another commodity. You lie in your bath listening to Gregorian chants and, and this uh, with candles, and th- that's kind of divinization of the self. And basically, the self is the centre of my universe, and even to the point of defining what's true and what isn't true. And again, we don't want to name names, but you can just look at the, the kind of attraction of, of certain politicians at the moment, where basically it's the self that's the centre of everything. And the other religion that's on the go, he would say, is fascistic nationalism, where belonging to a particular race or belonging to a particular country becomes a kind of religion. We've seen that in the past, we've seen where that leads, that is now on the go again. And Zizek would say, well, if that's the alternative, that's what's set before us, the kind of uh, narcissistic, new age, liberal capitalist version, or the fascistic nationalism one, perhaps we need to look again to stay with the Jewish Christian tradition. Because what you get there, and I wouldn't agree with everything that uh, Zizek talks about, but he talks in the figures of Christ and the figures of Paul, you have to construct an identity that is different from simply belonging to a tribe Mm. and simply um, worshipping yourself. And Paul certainly has to talk about disengaging from his membership of, of the Jewish people in order to rediscover himself as a child of God and that universal call. Christ, you know, has very harsh things to say. I know we're in the, we've got a Congress on the family coming up, but Jesus does say, you know, hate your father and hate your mother. If you're really going to find out who you are, be prepared to take a distance from whatever you belong to. And I think in the middle of this perfect storm, as you put it, where the temptations are either to just stick with our own people, batten down the hatches, keep the strangers out, because I think the fascistic and the self-love are two sides of the same coin. They're both crises of identity that say, in the middle of this great big whirling storm of pressures, I'll just stick with what I know. I'll stick with my own. And that's the challenge that Christians are in a position to try and help us to, to kind of work through. And theologians, you know, you need to lose yourself if you're going to find yourself. And that's the great spiritual paradox. But that's there in all the great religious traditions of finding ways of distancing ourselves from our tribe, from our nation, from our family even, uh, in order to find the truth. Is there a parallel with what happened maybe in the late 70s, 80s, 90s in Latin America where the people were so oppressed and were in such a state of oppression on a material level and in terms of their democratic freedoms that the liberation theology movement grew out of that, where the theology of the day and was seen to be a part of the apparatus of the state was critiqued and returned to the basic Christian communities, a return to a recovery of the Christ of the gospel. Now, 
in the West that never really took off in the same way. And anyway, those theologians would say you need to do your own work because each culture has its own work to do. Is that, do you think, a parallel for what you're calling for now? I think it's a very interesting parallel. I think you're absolutely right that there was this uh, effervescence in what we now call the global south, but particularly in Latin America, as this kind of new global awareness sets in. And I think it's it's partly post-Vatican II thing that we've become a world church. We recognise that the church is no longer just European voices and European influences, but that there's a kind of global church there. And that's where, of course, most Christians, now most Catholics, are now living in, in the global south, in Latin America and Asia and Africa. So that, I think, was a very interesting development which in some ways got stymied because of the fear of communism and arose during the Cold War. And, and, and I think the suspicion that it was indebted to Marxism made people very suspicious of it. What I think you have with someone like Pope Francis, who you'd have to say he is and he is not a liberation theologian. He's, he's very clearly not in favour of that style of liberation theology that is indebted to Marxist theory, and he's very suspicious of that. And yet he espouses a version of that from Argentina, which doesn't have some of those hang-ups and doesn't have some of that baggage. And the fact that he is putting, you would have to say, a liberation theology agenda at the forefront of the church through the centrality of the poor, being friends with the poor, challenging an economic and global order that is basically an enemy to the poor, and putting in, in language that people understand, I think is very, very exciting. Mm. It's as if liberation theory has had a, a kind of second spring in a way with this figure and he is from the south he is a brilliant choice in a way obviously he's italian because he's italian and yet he is from the south he understands the pastoral challenges from latin america and he's able to speak out of that so i think it's a very exciting resurgence if you like of some of those themes but they're all to do with the fact that we need to think as one human family we need to think as one global community if we are to survive at all. And this is the message from Laudato Si, that these issues are connected. The perfect storm you mentioned earlier on, but in apocalyptic language, you've got the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> you've got the environmental crisis. You've got the problem of, of poverty leading to refugees. And, and when migration becomes a difficult issue, that creates political challenges. And there's a kind of political deficit there. And the kind of financial economic institutions are unable to cope with that. And in the mix, you also have you know, people choosing various forms of fundamental ideology as a way of simplifying what is a complex situation. So you've got a lot of things going on. And Pope Francis, in his writings, is very clear that these problems are interconnected. You can't say you're interested in one, but not in the other. And he's also aware, and I think it's important, going back to the point you made at the very beginning, about the issue of different faiths as well. His commitment to the migrants, it's the Muslim migrant he brought back on the plane or whose foot he kissed in Lampedusa. And there is a sense that the divisions are not so much along different faith lines. They're more along ideological lines, which different faiths will fit into, that the battle is around core values of justice and a sense of the unity of all people and the sacredness of each and every individual, be they a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, Mm -hmm. whatever. Because as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the cardinals who have made statements about migrants sort of saying enough and no further, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're always on the side of that inclusivity. I think there are several very challenging situations. You mentioned the abuse crisis. We're now conscious of 
issues around migration and immigration, which are to do with identity. The fact that Ireland will be having a referendum shortly on, on the constitutional status of the unborn. What's running through all of these things is discussions about the identity of absolutely powerless person. The person has no one to protect them. And the rights and wrongs of abortion are obviously going to be debated and are being debated. But for those who want to protect the status of the unborn child, it's to do with the fact that this person has no one else to protect them. And similarly, the migrant, the person who is stateless, doesn't have a state to protect them, doesn't have a passport. I'm conscious, coming from Britain, with the whole Brexit debate at the moment, and uh, we, our passport used to say, um, Her Britannic Majesty requires and requests, da-da-da-da-da. And now it's just her Secretary of State requires and requests. But the fact that there's somebody up there looking after you, mm. And whether your passport is burgundy or blue doesn't matter in a sense, but you've got that bit of paper that gives you status. The migrant, the status person doesn't have that. And it's interesting, even just recently in, in the, the States, the, the discussion, what, what brought the government to a halt for several days was the question of the, the DACA immigrants. These people have nowhere else to go. You know, sending them back to a country they never lived in and they had no responsibility for moving on. Such a clear case of victims who required protection, and the fact that they became bargaining tools in, in a political standoff was very sad. But running through all of these, and again, they uh, once again keep coming back to the to the to the not just the child abuse crisis, but the current discussions around um, abuse more generally, the Me Too. People who find themselves on the receiving end of aggression or abuse or disdain, and have no one to protect them. Our culture is gradually become very, very aware that these people need to be at the centre of our politics rather than off to the side. Um, that they, they, We can no longer tolerate them as collateral damage while the rest of the world gets on with this business. And again, another of these uh, philosophers who's maybe atheist or agnostic but still sees a lot to learn from the Christian tradition, uh, an Italian called Giorgio Agamben, he speaks of the migrant would be the citizen of the future, um, the person who is not defined by where they happen to live or where they happen to be born. Uh, those are such inadequate ways of describing human beings. And the citizen of the future is going to look more like the migrant now. Uh, and it's a very interesting idea and uh, a very interesting vision, I think, that in the future it won't matter what bits of paper you've got in your pocket. How do we get there? I don't know. But... Christians can identify that because at the centre of our faith is the one who was rejected by everybody. The stone which the builders rejected and became the cornerstone. We understand that logic, we understand that thinking, and we can contribute from our tradition as we rebuild the world in the image and likeness of the migrant. Do you see seeds of hope that there is a sense of people saying, we have to change this, the halt has to be put to this gallop? Even though people feel very out of control and powerless in that relentless march of the economic drive. Well, I guess I'm one of life's natural optimists anyway, so I think there's always room for hope. Um, I suppose part of what I'm reflecting on now is stuff that I maybe read 20, 25 years ago, and it just shows how lazy I am, I haven't been keeping up with it. But ideas that were around... In the kind of mid-90s, as we were moving towards the millennium, and they were interesting to read then, and they seem to me to have become even more relevant now. Very interesting thinker, who was everybody's talking about at the time, another philosopher, as happens, called Julian Rose, who was a 
Jewish philosopher who became a Christian on her deathbed, uh, she talks about mourning, as in, again, grieving, and the sense that our culture is grieving on a large scale. And she'd speak of about postmodernism. She doesn't like to use the word postmodernism, but she says, if you can, there's, there's a kind of grieving process going on. And it's a grieving process going badly. You know, it's, it's not really unfolding well. And what are we grieving? Well, that's the question, I suppose, if we knew. But you can look around. What really strikes me, again, 25 years on, the anger that there is around, this sense of loss, sense of denial, the kind of erratic behaviour and the kind of desperation. I'm not a psychologist, but you could see that there's something in what Jean Rose was saying about this need for identifying what it is that we've lost. And maybe what we lost wasn't all that great anyway. But um, I think there's something in that image that we may be in need to work through this process. And again, People talk about the different stages of, of grief. You've got the anger and you've got the denial and the bargaining, etc. And eventually you come to some kind of stability. But I think if our culture can find ways of identifying that sense of loss and recognising that so much of the erratic behaviour that's going on at the moment is down to something like that, because grieving is not a rational process, it's something you just have to work through. And finally, do you take hope then from what it would appear to be an expression also of a yearning among many people for some kind of spiritual dimension, even if they're not turning to official churches of any sort. So you have the Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh coming over and there's 4,000 people go to see him mm-hmm. here. Or you have the International Fellowship of 12-step programmes, mm-hmm. Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon AA, deeply spiritual programmes where people are meeting all over the world, the rise in mindfulness. I'm thinking even if you go to a Leonard Cohen concert, the mm-hmm. number of people who are at those concerts, and he was talking a spiritual mm-hmm. theology mm-hmm. In, his, in what he writes, but he made it accessible and was addressing a hunger and a need in people collectively, I think. It's a challenge for theologians to come to the marketplace and address that because if we're going to be critical, they were very often in libraries and in institutions, but they were making no connection with ordinary people. That's absolutely right. And I think you could say that one of the the big challenges that was not being addressed was how to speak accurately in a Christian way about God. And Christians have this weird way of speaking about God as Trinity and we relate to God the Father as transcendent and however you want to describe that, whether he's up there or out there. Or there is someone who is beyond us. But God is also present in our brothers and sisters, Jesus, alongside us. And what we've not paid attention to is the presence of God in the world outside of the parameters of the church. And to affirm that and to recognise, yes, God's at work in everybody's human heart, calling them to himself. People have never even heard of Christ in many cases, and if they have come across Christ, they don't find him convincing, and yet they still find that yearning. Now, we as Christians are able to recognise the presence of God there, but we haven't done that because we've neglected this way of speaking, our own way of speaking about God. It's just this curious thing. It looks very odd, and we're often embarrassed to try and talk about it and wave a shamrock in the air and hope that that will do the trick. But this is so important that we recognise God's presence and action in the world and in a discerning way, we can offer support for that and say, OK, that's what people are being led to a sense of where God is. Then we affirm that. And I've got the lots of charlatans out there as well, and those need to be called out. Um, simply saying there's some kind of spiritual thing going on here 
is only part of the, the, the task. And I think we have traditions of discernment and helping to decide what's true and what's false that we can give to these searches, people looking. Uh, so we can help people decide, well, actually, this is a substantial way forward. This is just a marketing gimmick. Or, and as I said earlier on, that kind of self-massaging, feel-good kind of spirituality that doesn't actually challenge you. And I think it brings us back to the question of the victim. How does this cash out in terms of social justice? How does it cash out in terms of moving towards the vulnerable? Because insofar as we're doing that, we're moving towards Christ, because Christ is present in those victims. And I think there are possibilities now of us connecting up with that wider spiritual search that possibly we neglected in the past. Yeah, somebody like Richard Rohr, Ron Walheiser, who have the background and the training but are able to bridge that gap and make an impact in, say, somewhere like America and much further afield now, mm. but ultimately challenging at the end that it's about bringing about a just society for everybody, moving beyond the dualisms and moving beyond the self-satisfied critique that you've made of individualistic liberal capitalism. Well, you mentioned the dualism, and I think that is the big problem we've got at the moment. We are falling into camps, and that's sometimes just a kind of culture war. And the two sides are not listening, whether it's Republicans and Democrats, whether it's factions around political issues like abortion, whether it's Brexiteers and Ramonas. The extent to which those camps are becoming entrenched, that's part of what I call this apocalyptic division into the good and the bad. Basically, our side has got all the answers, we're in the right don't even need to listen to what those people are saying. Don't even need to read their blogs because blah, blah, blah. And somehow Christians called to try and break that down and without giving up on what we believe is right, to listen in and to try and make those, well, as Pope Francis puts it, to build bridges, not walls.